0: To be honest, Isaiah 53 could be about a 10 part series. Maybe one day the Lord will allow. If you really want that to happen, you better start praying for it to happen, all right? Maybe He'll move faster in that department. Nevertheless, I want to read this for us tonight because I want us to focus just something the Lord impressed upon me when I started pastoring is that the Wednesday before uh, Resurrection Sunday that we celebrate Easter, uh, that we would focus on the cross, that we would focus on the suffering of Jesus Christ for our sins. We've got to understand that the reason why Jesus ever suffered for one moment is because of our sin. Sin causes suffering, but here's the thing about our sins is that it caused our Savior to suffer greatly. He did so though willingly, lovingly, graciously, mercifully, because of our sins and for our sins. Isaiah 53 tells us, Who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, for he hath no form nor comeliness and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him the nation of Israel would see Jesus and they would not think a a, a lick about him they would not think anything extra about him or anything special about him as a matter of fact many of them would say can anything good come from from there Uh, isn't that just old Joseph the carpenter's kid right But nevertheless, it tells us he is despised and rejected. He's not just questioned, he's not just brushed off, but he's despised and rejected of men, and he still is today, and that's why we have commercials like we see today. He says he despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, now pay attention to the next few verses especially, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. Notice this as we talked about this past Sunday, about Him being the Passover Lamb of God. He is our substitute. He is the one that took our place. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The curse of sin itself was placed upon Christ. He was sinless, spotless, He was perfect. He was the God-man. And sin was placed upon Him. Our charge. Our account. The great exchange. He gets all of our unrighteousness, all of our wickedness placed upon Him. Even sin and the curse upon sin itself is placed upon Christ so that you and I can now be clothed in His righteousness. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears as dumb so he openeth not his mouth. First Peter talks about it. He was reviled and reviled not. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. What a heavy passage this is. We think about this week. This week we celebrate, and truthfully, every Sunday that we gather, we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. You and I, we spend a whole month, and I'm not making fun of it, because I enjoy the Christmas season. Y'all like Christmas, don't you? We decorate for Christmas. We spend a whole evening together. We decorate Christmas. We sing Christmas songs and hymns all week, uh, you know, all month. We have cookie socials, and there's pageants and plays and special music and all this stuff, special events, all for Christmas. That's wonderful. I enjoy it. But we often forget the reason why we meet every Sunday. It's not just because it's Sunday, and that's one of the two days you might have off from work. It's not just because it's a convenient time. As a matter of fact, Sundays for a lot of folks ain't but so convenient. But here's the thing, whether convenient or not, It does not matter. What matters is that is the first day of the week, and that is the day that Christ rose from the dead. So every Sunday that we gather, we gather in the name of Christ, and we gather freely because Jesus has made us free through His death, burial, and His resurrection. And it still stands true. It still stands sufficient. And so every time we gather, it is to remember and to rejoice in the resurrection of our Lord. But we need to remember His great suffering before we get to this Sunday that we all celebrate, and this week we'll see church signs or Facebook posts, or we might even tell one another, Sunday's coming, Sunday's coming. And that's a good thing because it reminds us that Sunday is coming. We have to remember that there was a cross first. Now with this, I wanted to begin here tonight. We've got a great deal to cover. I am going to do my best to get you out of here on on time. I want to be mindful of that. Nevertheless, tonight... That handout that you got, you got a couple handouts. The reason why I gave these to you tonight is because all week long, and to be honest with you, I struggle with some things. you all ever struggle with stuff? I know I do. I struggle getting in the flesh. I struggle not getting on Facebook and making rants and posts about a bunch of nonsense and malarkey that's out there. And here's what has happened every single Easter week as far as I can possibly remember. We hop on Easter week on Facebook, and this pastor or that pastor, or this Christian or that Christian, or this false teacher or that false teacher is out there and they're arguing so heavily for one day of the week in particular that Jesus was crucified on. How many of y'all have ever heard of Good Friday? How many of y'all have ever heard that Jesus died on a Friday? All right. How many of y'all ever heard of Wednesdays? Anybody ever Wednesdays? A few Wednesdays, right? That's the big one right now, floating around on Facebook. How many of y'all ever heard Thursday? Couple of you, all right. Well, here's the great truth tonight. I do believe, in my humble opinion, through my study, and this is what we're, we, we got here for you tonight. You do the math, and I believe that the math, Old and New Testament alike, points to this that the 14th day, the day of preparation, went to the, that Thursday where Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he was raised from the dead the first day of the week. So he died, and I know this, Sunday morning, he rose. And he did that for my sin and because of my sin. So here's what can happen. You can get on one, and you can do everything you can to approve a Friday, or everything you can to approve Thursday, or everything you can to approve Wednesday, and all you will do is continue to keep people confused, agitated, irritated, and we miss the whole point. Nevertheless, gave you this. This is not my original work. There's a, a great group that put this together. Wanted to give this to you. It goes from Nisan 8, which is the Friday before. You've got, this is six days prior to the crucifixion. Jesus traveled to Bethany on the 9th. You could trace this through and here's what this will do. You've got, this is a written copy and the next one too, it is a timeline that goes in chronological order with the scriptures. You can trace it Here's the thing that everyone that's arguing on Facebook right now has got to understand, and that we've got to understand humbly tonight as well. Alright? Is that okay? We've got to understand that we are not Jews. It's pretty simple there. The Jewish timeline has changed in 2,000 years as far as how they tell time encounters. It's still different than ours, and here's the thing, we cannot impose on the Bible a Roman or... Uh, American version of how time is told. And so here's the thing. I believe that starting there in Genesis, we have how God and the Israelites would use time. The Bible tells us in the days of creation, what does it say? And the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, you and I, we tell time with several different periods throughout a day, but we start, the day starts when? Morning. Okay, let's get more specific. What time does it start? 12 a.m. Okay, 12 (laughs) a.m. Whatever time you wake up, right? That's when my day starts, right? Whenever the alarm goes, whenever the the rooster starts a-hollering, right? 12 a.m., right? Tonight at midnight, that's going to start tomorrow. Right? And then it'll end when it goes midnight again. 24-hour period. Guess what? That's how we tell it. That's not Bible times. Nor is it Jewish whatsoever. Now I believe if we look and they continue to use this, here's what we're going to find. is As we go through here, we're going to see that their day started, their new day started at night. Now it makes no sense for you and I. Their new day started at evening time. Then it continued and ended the next day, when the next daylight hours in it. So we have to think of it this way. Nighttime begins the day for them. Daytime, when it's over, that ends the day for them. So for you and I right now, we've got to understand that here when the sun goes down, for them that would have been beginning the new day. That would have been the first part of the day, the evening. Now granted, they're still going to bed. They're not not working at night and then sleeping in the day. They're not night shift workers or anything, okay? But here's what this we have to understand. It's a different train of thought than what you and I have all together. Now, you can add up multiple different ways, and I've heard those who hold the Friday's crucifixion, they try to make their math math. I'm not sure how that maths, to be honest with you. I'm not sure how that calculates and adds up to three days, three nights. Nevertheless, I don't have to give an account for them, and that's okay. I'm not willing to die over it anyways. Jesus already died for it, so I, I ain't got to worry about it. Then we've got those on Wednesday nights who say he died on a Wednesday. Well, it's a Wednesday to us, but come evening time, it begins Thursday for them. So this is why I believe as we look here, we've got this. We've got Jesus, I believe, being crucified on that Thursday as we follow along here. Sunday, as we celebrate this past Sunday, Palm Sunday on the 10th day, right? Right? Now, we talked about this in Exodus 12. What's significant about that tenth day? That's the selection of the lamb. And the sheep would come in through the sheep gate for the Passover week to be slaughtered for sacrifice and for the Passover meal. Now, as we go through here, on Monday, what did Jesus do? As you follow the Scriptures in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what does it tell us? He goes back in Jerusalem. He curses a fruitless fig tree. He cleanses the temple. Come Tuesday... They go back into town, back into Jerusalem. They were going back and forth, hanging out with Lazarus at their house, essentially, in between this time, during this Passover week. Remember, the Passover week, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this big celebration, it's not just the men gathering to Jerusalem like most of the other feasts throughout the year. Everybody's coming. And guess where you're going to stay? Not at the Hampton Inn or the Motel 6. You're going to be staying normally with friends and family. Right? It's going to look like Griswold's Christmas vacation. Everybody's piling in, sleeping on bunk beds. That's what they're doing. They're piling up somewhere. All right. Now they're staying there, and it's not but a couple miles away to the town, to the city of Jerusalem, so they're going back and forth. Now Jesus, through this time, is doing what the Scripture would fulfill for the Lamb of God to do. He's going to be scrutinized. He's going to go through that, and we're going to look at his mock trial here in just a moment. But as we get then to uh, Tuesday, there's a continual teaching and preaching that he does. He teaches the disciples all the more. Then we get to Wednesday. Jesus returns to Bethany, has dinner with Simon the leper. While there, uh, he gets anointed. The authorities plot to kill Jesus. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. And then we get to Thursday, the 14th day. Now, according to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, according to Old Testament law, on the 14th day in the son of this same month, There's been four days that have passed. That sheep, that lamb has been watched to make sure it is spotless and without blemish. And on the 14th day is when they're going to slaughter the lamb for the evening. Then that night, as we read this past Sunday and and looked at the message in Exodus 12, for the first Passover, which set up the rest of the Passovers and how they would do it because you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it continues to give the Passover process of how it's supposed to go. Each one saying the same thing. Tenth day, select the lamb. Fourteenth day, kill the lamb. Then that night, roast with fire, eat with bitter herbs, and do so preparing and celebrating and remembering the Exodus, how God delivered His people. So in that Thursday, the Last Supper was was during the nighttime hours preceding the daytime hours. Remember, their day starts in the evening and ends after the next daylight, right? So Thursday starts at the nighttime. Then it's going to end the next day when the next evening comes around. Does that make sense? Essentially, their day is not going from morning to morning like us. It's going evening to evening. So for you and I, the last part of our day is evening time. For them, the last part of their day is the daytime. Before it turns evening again, that starts the new day. So as we look at this, y'all follow along here. And that's why I gave this to you so that you can research it later. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. You can use this for for lighter fluid, okay? It's not going to bother me a bit. (laughs) It's not. not, not a bit bothered by it. It's okay. So that night, it was according to John 13:1. Look at the Scripture. It says, Before the feast of the Passover, after the supper, Jesus and the disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 36, and John 18. Jesus betrayed by Judas. Jesus is arrested and taken to the high priest Caiaphas. Peter denied Jesus three times. Still nighttime. He's warmed himself up by the fire, right? Still dark outside. Then the daytime hours of Thursday comes. And this is the second portion of their day. What happens in the daylight? Potts said to the Jews, here's your king. They asked that Barabbas be released, Jesus be crucified. Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. At the same time that Passover lambs were slain, Jesus hung on the cross to get his life. Now there is a correction here. They had down six hours of darkness from nine to three. He was crucified from nine to three. There was darkness from 12 to three. All right. So they have their typo there. Nevertheless, Notice in John 19, they say, hey, we got to get his body down now before it turns evening. Why? Evening starts the next day, and they said that it's going to be a Sabbath. Now, here's what happens. That Friday group, y'all remember that Friday group that says Jesus crucified on a Friday? Y'all remember? Just go like yes, that's all right. That group that says it was on a Friday, they believe that Sabbath, yes, ma'am, Huh, the time begins, the crucifixion process, it was about a six-hour process altogether from about nine to three. Nine in the morning, about three. It says six hours of darkness. It wasn't six hours of darkness. Six hours total. Three hours of darkness from 12 to three. Yes. Right, right, right. I got you. I got you. So you got the Friday group that hears John and John's record says that they got to get his body down because the next day was a Sabbath. Now, For the Jews, the Sabbath day, the day of rest, was Saturday. So that's where they get the Friday from. But we've got to understand this, and here's where that Wednesday group is right. They're forgetting the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th day. So if we're following this calendar correctly, that would be that Friday. That's going to be a high Sabbath day. What do you mean a high Sabbath day? Well, here's the thing. If you've got... Let's take for us example. We've got 52 weeks in a year, right? And so if we treated every Sunday like it was a Sabbath day, we'd have 52 Sabbath day, right? Now then if we go further and we say, well, we also celebrate Christmas for a week, Easter for a week, Thanksgiving for a week. We got seven other weeks where we have big celebrations, right? Well, we've got now some extra high Sabbath times of rest. That's the whole idea. So here's what's taking place. That day that the unleavened bread feast would take place, they would then eat unleavened bread for seven days. That would begin on the 15th day. That appears to be that Friday. The Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was observed during the nighttime hours of Nisan 15th. Then we've got that Saturday, which is just a regular weekly Sabbath. And then we've got Sunday. What's that? Resurrection Sunday. And what's important about that as well is there it follows the first day of the week was the feast of the first fruits. Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians 15 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So, with that being said, <laughs> read through this, cross-reference the scripture, look at that timeline, and if you disagree with me. That's fine. And if you agree, that's fine too. Because here's what I know. Jesus came because I am a sinner. Jesus laid down His life for my sin. Every prophecy about His death, burial, and resurrection from Old Testament came true. He came. He died. He was put into the grave for three days and three nights. And he rose again on Sunday morning, and that's why we gather each Sunday morning to worship our risen Lord, and especially on Easter because it gives us an excuse to have breakfast together and get up extra early and wear some pretty pastel colors. All right, praise God for it. Now, let's get into this. I want—I had to address it. About plum irritated me this week. All right, better to address it with you guys and get on Facebook and rant. So, if you want to know what Pastor Joe thinks look at this. I believe it was Thursday because you look, you got evening, you got nighttime, daytime, nighttime, daytime, nighttime, daytime. Jesus is up before dawn on Sunday, right? To me, that's how you get three days, three nights. That's how you have the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jonah that he'd be in the Heart of the earth for three days, three nights. And as Paul puts it this way, and it's not contradictory, on the third day He rose again according to the Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. You've got to understand, it all comes together. This Bible does not contradict itself. Rather, it proves itself over and over and over again. And here's the great truth. You read 1 Corinthians 15, what do you find? Hundreds saw the risen Lord. I've never seen Him. But this book is good enough for me to trust it and one day I will see the risen Lamb of God. That's what we get to look forward to. Alright? Now I want to look here at an overview of events and some detail from that night. Did this last year and feel impressed as well to go back again and to look at the mock trial. I know it's a lot and it's a mouthful to kind of look at all these things. Because many of us have not heard some of these things or let alone studied it because we've all just said, well, Good Friday or whatever, new charts floating around on Facebook tells whatever day He got crucified on. I want us to understand some of the details. There was a complete and total farce of a trial that went on. Jesus was guilty of nothing. But here's what the Lord did. He sent His perfect, spotless without blemish son, his own lamb, who was sinless. Completely without fault or failures. He had nothing he could be guilty of. Any crime you could put against Jesus, he will not be guilty. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And Jesus died for those who were guilty, guilty, guilty. So that they can be pronounced by His blood, Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. That is the wonderful doctrine of being justified by His imputed righteousness. He has taken every wicked thing that I've ever done. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be made the righteous of God in Him. It is because of Christ's grace that we are saved. It has now been freely His righteousness given to us so that on my account no longer is it once was it's not even once was guilty anymore for me. The moment you trusted Christ, you've heard it been said it's justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Right? That's true, but it don't quite go far enough. It is as not just as if you never sinned, but it's as if sin itself in your life or on your account never was even there as a charge. Why? Because Jesus took that instead. Jesus pled guilty for every crime that I did. It makes no fleshly sense to you and I, but that is the Lord's way of saving sinners. Outside of that, there is no salvation. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It always has been. It always will be. So on that night, the 14th, that Thursday night, That starts at sundown and the rest of the day that goes through the daytime, which he'd be crucified on before it turns into the 15th that evening. (laughs) Anyways, that's right. Here's what happens He was then arrested after his betrayal, right? He's arrested and brought back to the palace of the high priest, Caiaphas, where he was questioned by Annas, a former high priest, and Caiaphas, Annas' son in law. Annas kept power of priesthood through his sons and son-in-law until the end of his life. Notice already the political issues at hand. Wherever you find man, you'll find a grab for power through politics. And what had happened in that day is that the Jewish elite and the religious leaders who were supposed to do what? Hold up the law to glorify God, to keep the law pure, to keep themselves pure, to keep the people pure. Instead, have been corrupted by wickedness because where you find mankind, you will find wickedness. What we find from the very get-go of Jesus' betrayal and illegal arrest and illegal trial is that Jesus came to be a ransom for sinners. He came to save that which was lost. But afterwards, He was untried what would be called the Sanhedrin, found to be guilty of blasphemy by proclaiming himself the Son of God. He was sentenced to the death penalty. During this, what you find is that there's many of them who are going, well, who's who's mocking you? Who's speaking to you? Tell us. Prophesy. Prophesy. These things are starting to happen. The mocking and the ridicule has happened. And here's what they had said. Now, we've got to understand about the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin in Jerusalem acted as a supreme court of the land, specifically of that of the religious and ceremonial laws of Moses. So these are the ones who would come and would decide whether someone should be stoned or not based upon their sin or according to the law, how their sin should be dealt with. Many of these members were a part of the same group, but even not too long prior to Jesus' uh, time where he would be uh, betrayed and crucified for our sins, they would bring into the temple a woman who was caught in the middle of adultery and say, surely, Jesus, what, what do you think ought to be done here? Right. Jesus, I love what he does. He ignores them. Starts writing in the sand. And one by one, they walk away. Oldest to the youngest. And that's important. Old men get the wisdom. You normally don't have humility when you're young. And so it seems as if those older ones who had learned and said, okay, yeah, we're not quite perfect, though we act like it. And they slowly put down their stones and walked away until there was no one. The Sanhedrin... There were a council made up of 71 members. There was 24 that were chief priests. 46 that were elders chosen from among the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. Notice this pyramid scheme, right? This is, this is the first Tupperware paparazzi pyramid scheme, right? If any of you guys know about pyramids, that's what they are. Y'all know all about that. You give all your money to all them pyramids. Mary Kay's one of them too. <laughs> I go to. up I preach it against it. My wife done spent half my paycheck for that stuff. That's why she's selling earrings now. I'm going to get in trouble. I better stay on top. They choose 46 elders from among the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the high priest was both overseer and a voting member. So now they got 71. So that way, if there's a tie, he can split it. All they need is a majority to rule. They acted much like the, the, the court of law. They, they operated and focused. Now, here's the thing. You say... Weren't they under Roman control? Well, they were. But here's the important part. The Romans, when they would come in and take over places, they let them keep some of their culture, all the while still holding all the cards. They let the Jews feel as if they still had their own land, their own control, their own stuff because they had this in here. But notice all the while, too, what you find throughout Jesus' ministry is it seems as if they're in the getting in the back pocket of the Romans. We, we find that they're doing all sorts of crooked things. There's just absolute perversion everywhere you look, especially politically. Now, they had become, uh, as a group, corrupt by political gain and maneuvering as well as position moving through bribes. Jesus preaches about this all throughout His ministry. He calls them a bunch of vipers, whitewashed tombs. He calls them all sorts of things, all of which were right and accurate because they, much like their forefathers, had said with their lips how much they loved the Lord, but their hearts were far from Him. As a matter of fact, the Lord was in the presence, veiled in flesh, and they rejected and denied Him. And they wanted nothing to do with Him. Because as righteous as the Pharisee and the Sadducee and the scribes appeared to be on the outside, Only Jesus was truly pure. And they knew the difference. Since only the Romans were able to execute criminals, he was sent to Pontius Pilate at the Antonia Fortress. Pilate, not finding anything wrong, sent him to King Herod, who returned him back to Pilate. And Pilate, submitting to the pressure of the crowd, then ordered that Jesus be flogged and crucified. He was finally led out of the city walls to be crucified at Calvary. Or Golgotha place of the skull. There He would be crucified, numbered amongst the transgressors as we read in Isaiah 53. He would be led out of the city much like that scapegoat that would be led away from the people bearing the sins. Every Old Testament type and picture from the tabernacle to the temple to every sacrifice that was ever given was pointing to Jesus Christ. His person and His work. This book is not about you nor is it about me. It is about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the One who is the image of the invisible God, His Father, and who sends us, His believers, His Spirit to indwell us, empower us, enable us, strengthen us, convict us, and to seal us into the day of redemption where then one day Jesus the Son will be sent by the Father to collect His bride, and there we shall ever be with the Lord. Now, I want to look at a couple of illegalities of the trial. I want to give you a couple of verses. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime and offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Is essentially what it's getting at. Then Deuteronomy 17.6 says, On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Mark 14.56 Many testified falsely against Him but their statements did not agree. So meaning this, the Sanhedrin, the councils, they bring in all sorts of people to testify against Jesus and their stories don't line up. Now what do you do in a court of law when the stories ain't lining up? Most of the time, what happens to the case? It gets chucked, right? And if you're like Kimmy, you get off jury duty. Praise the Lord, right? But it gets dismissed altogether. It's gone. Why? Because if the witnesses can't agree on what they witnessed, then it's a farce anyways. And yet, it continued. That group of religious elite had already made up their mind. They wanted this man dead. After the resurrection of Lazarus and the triumphal entry, it's recorded that they say the whole world has gone after him. Why are they so afraid of Jesus? One... He's awfully convicting through their actual state spiritually. Every word He says, everything He does. And they can't help but see, Yeah, you know, we're not right like we thought we was, but they would not repent. And there's a difference between those who remain in their sin and those who get gloriously born again. Furthermore, if He is the Messiah, and He is the King, then that means... Our little power trip we got and our little game of of Monopoly, it's over because he holds all the cards. Man will do anything to justify his own sin and they will do anything to stay in power, especially unjustly over another. Every one of us, whether we consciously understand this or not, are always seeking to be better than the person next to us and to have more authority or control than the person next to us. Even if that means we have to do something crooked. That's sinful flesh. Now, I wanted to give you here, one author puts together this sort of, not necessarily a timeline if you will, but this whole long list of everything illegal that, went hap- that happened on this night. Now, with them, any arrest should not and could not be made at night. Well, that sounds kind of contrary to old Batman and, and Gotham City and everything else. They're, they're arresting everybody at nighttime, but not for the Jews here. The trial as well could not happen at night. And if it had begun then there would be a recess until the following daytime meaning they were not going to continue it from one day during the day to begin the evening the nighttime of another day they would take the recess go home sleep on it and come back the next day fresh now the time and the date of the trial as well were legal because it took place at night and on the eve not just of a sabbath regular week sabbath but a high sabbath it happened right before the feast of the unleavened bread, which would be happening the following evening. Now this time precluded any chance for the required adjournment to the next day in the event of a conviction. The Sanhedrin was without authority to instigate charges. It was only supposed to investigate charges brought before it. In Jesus' trial, the court itself formulated the charges. So they were only supposed to hear out what was being brought to them. Instead, they're hearing what they brought amongst themselves pitiful in it. Completely contrary to the law that they say that they uphold. The charges against Jesus. Y'all got time? It's I know it's past 7.30. Y'all gotta, we're gonna, I'll just keep going. Y'all haven't left. If you do leave, I understand. I understand. You've you got to do what you got to do. The charges against Jesus changed during the trial. He was initially charged with blasphemy based upon his statement that he would be able to destroy and rebuild the temple of God within three days. What was he talking about? He was talking about his body, wasn't he? He said, I'll tear this down. Three days, build it back up. And they said, this place took decades. Are you going to tear it down and build it back up? When he was brought before Pilate then, the charge was that Jesus was a king and did not advocate paying taxes to the Romans. Why did they change the charge there? It's because they knew that Pilate wouldn't care so much about him being a god. The Romans believed in plenty of gods. They cared about whether or not Caesar was going to be honored and given his money because if he's not, then Pilate and Herod are going to be losing their positions and even their lives. Notice once more, whether you are Gentile or Jew, if you are in your sinful flesh, all you care about is your sinful flesh and your own power, your own pride. Now, as stated above, the requirement of two witnesses in agreement to merit the death penalty was not met. Everyone contradicted one another and could not bring about a true witness. Now the court did not meet in the regular meeting place of the Sanhedrin as required by Jewish law either. They're bouncing back and forth from place to place. They're trying to speed this thing on through. It's a total hoax. As well, Christ has not permitted a defense. Under Jewish law, an exhaustive search into the facts presented by the witnesses should have occurred, and it did not occur. The Sanhedrin pronounced the death sentence under the law. The Sanhedrin were not allowed to convict and put the death sentence into effect. John 18.31 says, Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him in judgment according to your law. And the Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. And so for them they're saying, That's why I him to you because we want him dead, but we can't do it ourselves, Or else we break the law. And if we break the law, then we're not clean. Then we can't have supper tomorrow and celebrate the high Sabbath day. Notice this. It's all about themselves. That's the sinful nature of man. There would be a day of fasting and prayer over especially difficult decisions that involved capital punishment as well. Wouldn't that be nice if our court systems fasted and prayed about decisions? Federal and state level? Wouldn't it be wonderful if our presidents and our congressmen and our senators and our mayors and our towns Wouldn't it be wonderful if our pastors or our deacons or our trustees or our people prayed and fasted over decisions all the way down the line? If it was something difficult like this, they would take a pause and even take days and go, we're going to fast, we're going to pray, seek the Lord, then we'll come back. That's how it ought to be done. Instead, what do they do? Let's get this thing rolling, right? So at the conclusion of this, we find that the court was already made their conclusion, their, their decision was already made before the illegal trial ever occurred. Now, you can see that in John eleven forty five to 57 They had already determined what they wanted to do. They wanted Jesus gone. And as we look, the Bible talks about, in all four Gospels, the crucifixion. They've placed a crown of thorns upon him. They've beaten him. They've mashed him, all these things, and he gets let out. You can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all about the crucifixion process, and each one has its own wonderful witness to Christ's suffering. I want to give you a rundown essentially of what would take place. This would begin during the daylight hours of the 14th day, the day of preparation. What are they preparing for? They're preparing for the Passover, for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. That afternoon when Jesus is crucified was also the same time on that Thursday that the lambs would be be slain for the feast. Jesus has been up for a long time. If you remember, He had been up the previous day. Then that night, He's teaching His disciples. He's washing their feet. He has a last supper with them. They then take the stroll out to the garden. There in the garden, He drops to his knees afar from his his brethren as a few go a little bit deeper and they begin to sleep because they're tired and weary. These were strong, tough men. Why are they tired and weary? Because they were tired and weary physically. They were plumb wore out. They had been on the run, on the move, on the go since day one. And for days now, they've been in and out of Jerusalem going through the ministry life, preparing for the, the, the celebration and the week that is at hand. And Jesus prays that night as it were drops great drops sweat of blood he prays lord father let this pass cut from me nevertheless not my will but thy will be done jesus as we're going to find is not so much worried about the crucifixion process for he knows it won't last forever but in that moment, the worst part about the crucifixion for Jesus, as we'll see, is not what we're about to cover. It's the fact that in that moment, His Father would turn from Him and would pour out wrath upon Him that was reserved for you and me. He would have sin placed upon Him. He would be declared guilty for crimes of which He never committed. He would face the wrath of His heavenly Father, who he has been in sweet fellowship with from an eternity past to eternity future. And he's giving that up for a moment on the cross, the bloody and cruel and rugged cross, because of my sin. May we never look at the cross as a decoration. It was the place where my sin was paid for. Now that day began with mockery and abuse. They would spit on him and I can't think of anything more disgusting or more disrespectful, can you? They would cover his eyes begin to punch and to slap him asking, prophesy, who hits you? Then there would be the royal mocking. Okay, you think you're the king? They say you're the king. We'll show you, king, here you go. You'd strip him of his clothes, put on a scarlet or purple robe which is the color of royalty crown of thorns. Scripture, though, describes Him in glory with royal diadems. Not a crown of thorns. I've never seen a king wear a crown of thorns. This one did. Then, while the crown of thorns is there, they begin striking His head with a reed. This would take the, the thorns, which aren't little, little brush pile out back. You know, you get little scrape from weed-eating. These are thorn thorns. They've been carefully, methodically wrapped around and around to be placed upon a head and then to be driven upon the brow so that now, instead of royalty and honor that flows from your brow, it is blood. Searing pain from this. And then it would be mockingly worshipped. Hail, King of the Jews. As Pilate would say, Behold the man. Here at this point, Jesus has already gone through an immense amount of abuse. And it's just begun. Now Christ's suffering, I want to look here at the crucifixion history. It was a Roman form of the death penalty. It had been used by the Persians many years long before the Romans. But the Romans perfected it. The Romans were incredibly smart. They knew how to inflict pain Matter of fact, many times the crucifixion process would not just be a matter of hours, it would be a matter of days. They knew how to keep you alive on the brink of death without ever letting you die. They knew how to inflict pain. Even now, think about the most painful thing you've ever dealt with physically. Not sure what it might be childbirth. That's a rough one. I haven't done it. Right? You think we've all been through some immense pain. This pales in comparison, though. The crucifixion process, we'd have the trial, sentencing. They sent him to be scourged. The scourging was so brutal that many criminals, only criminals and non-Roman citizens, would be given over to it. It was so cruel that a Roman citizen would not be given a t- You had to be a terrible criminal and you had to be non-Roman to go through this. They would be whipped with what is often called a cat of nine tails. These leather thongs go about yay long. They're designed to not just simply hit your back. That would be laid tight open because the tighter the skin, the more it's going to open up. It makes it much worse. In the process, as you're going about this, it's going to hit your back, cause the lacerations and the pain, but with what's on the end of the cat of nine tails, it's going to wrap around and it's going to cause even more destruction. Many times at the end of it would be iron balls, sheep bone, things of that nature attached to the end. Each lash that would come about, and remember there's at least nine of them, and this is going to happen numerous times to the Lord's back. He would give His back to the smiters of the psalms each lash would be two inches long and about three quarters inch deep that's deep it's bloody there's immense amount of pain i mean you can let out a yelp if you're cutting grass and you go and get caught by a thing of thorns and it rips your shirt open and it causes you to bleed a little it hurts it's painful and that's nothing to what this was Each one, each one of these motions, nine separate of these leather thongs with the sharp endings are going to be ripping open. That's with one strike. It's essentially getting struck nine times with one blow. But this would happen as believed 39 times. There were many who did not survive through that. There would be immense blood loss, pain. For many, they might face circulatory shock. However, I do not believe that our Lord does. I believe that our Lord did not go into some as some believe and, and promote. There are many who promote that Jesus went into such shock that He just didn't know what was going on. And just kind of went through the motions. My friend, you have to know what's going on and have your wits about you in order to lay down on a cross. He knows what he's doing. He knows every strike that will happen to him. He knew it before, he said, "Let there be light." and willingly went all the way. Now in this, each stripe, 39 times, the Cat- of nine tails, all the while, his love for those that are beating him does not change. Nor does it fail. Nor is it even questioned for a moment. Those are the very ones He's dying for. And Furthermore, when the soldiers tore the rope from Jesus' back, it probably would have reopened many of the scourging wounds. Isaiah 52 verse 14 says, His visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men The idea is this. He was a piece of meat being slaughtered for us. Because you and I are not Jewish and have never made sacrifices daily, let alone yearly for the Day of Atonement, we don't know what it means to shed blood for the remission of sins. You and I don't understand what it means to let a lamb live in your house for four days and then slaughter it knowing that that blood is to cover your sins. Jesus lived amongst His people and He was despised and rejected. He would be slaughtered as a lamb. His blood would flow. We often see depictions and pictures of Jesus where He's up on a tree and it looks like a telephone pole, but just shorter, and He's got, He's got some rope around Him and there's a couple little spots of blood. His visage... His image was so marred. When we think of a sacrifice, you and I see pictures in Sunday school about the temple or the tabernacle and sacrifice, and we see a little trickle of blood. You ever cut the throat of an animal? Or opened up its belly? It's not a little trickle. The crucifixion process... Continued beyond the scourging, though. The criminal would then have to carry the beam. They would not carry an entire cross as it's set up as this is. They carried the cross beam. Y'all ever heard that term before? The cross beam? That's what this is. This weighed about 100 to 150 pounds. It's The size of an of a, of a average man probably of that day. It's no easy feat, especially when the fact that you've just been beaten nearly half to death. Blood is pouring. And now you're handling not a nice glossed over cross like this, but rather you're handling, you could almost imagine, a, a railroad tie. A cross beam that way. And you're having to carry it under the weight of which your joints have already been suffering from the, the beating, the abuse. Your body is ripped open. And now you're going to have to walk through the streets from where you've been beaten to where you're going to die. All the while, you're understanding that by the time you make it up to the top, you might be dead. But nevertheless, if you make it to the top, you're going to die. There is no getting out of this. There's no get-out-of-jail-free. There's no do-overs. There's no retrials. The moment it started, it will commence to its ending. And the ending is your death. You're carrying your literal death. As a matter of fact, we're told in the Scriptures and the Gospels that it becomes far too heavy. And so, they get a bystander to come and he carries it the rest of the way for the Lord. Jesus would lay down upon that cross willingly. You say, well, how do we know that? Jesus said specifically, I lay down my life. He lays down as the sacrifice there upon the altar to be slain to let His blood upon the mercy seat, if you will. So that God would look and see and would be satisfied with the final and the truer Lamb of God. The true Passover Lamb. The rest that would be killed that afternoon would not matter a lick. The nails would then be driven in specific places that can hold the body weight. You can take and feel yourself in between your wrists there. You can feel between the two bones you dig deep enough, it's awful painful. We often think about palms. For a palm for this time period went beyond just right here like a deck of cards in your hand. It covered a portion of the wrist to the fingers themselves. But in that, it can hold the body weight while causing the most pain possible. There's an immense amount of the nerves, the damage that would be caused, and here's what then would happen. There might not be a lot of blood that comes from those nails being placed because they perfected the process to maximize the pain, but minimize the blood loss because you've already lost plenty at that point. And now you've been nailed. And here's what's going to then be happen. You're going to be lifted up on that cross. Now it's complete. You're nailed you're cro- you're all, you're nailed to your crossbeam and your crossbeam now nailed and tied to the rest of the cross. So now, it's, now you're going up vertical. They're going to lift you up into a hole. It's about a foot and a half deep. They're going to drop you into it. And the Bible tells us, prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled with Christ, that none of His bones would be broken and they would not be, but His bones popped out of joint. You ever had a, had a shoulder pop out? It's awful painful, isn't it? Now He's got that over His body. And now the breathing begins. The breathing becomes shallow, difficult, searing pain to the wrists and to the feet where the nails have been driven. These aren't nails for hanging pictures. These are nails for hanging meat. There Jesus would be nailed with the pain here and of course upon His feet. And in order to breathe, He's going to have to lift Himself up to catch His breath. Now with this, as you do this, you notice what must you do as you lift yourself up putting pressure here on the nails and here on the nails. So there the nerves are aggravated all the more and they're searing pain all the more just to be able to go (gasps) to catch a breath. To let it out again. (gasps) To let it out again. Each time with the same pain. Just to catch a breath. Moment by moment there Jesus would be in darkness for three hours. As the wrath of God is being poured out upon the Son, the Father is bruising the Son and it pleased Him to do so for our sins. There, Jesus who knew no sin is having sin placed upon Him. There in the courtroom of God, Jesus is now being declared guilty so that you and I can be declared not guilty. With every breath, he breathes to die, to give up his life, so that you and I, who were dead in sins and trespasses, can spiritually breathe. Many would die after days, exhaustion, asphyxiation. Blood loss. What often happened, and it happened to the thieves on to the left and the right of Jesus, the guards would come and they would break their legs to keep them from lifting themselves up to breathe, which would cause them to die within minutes. If you can't lift yourself up to breathe, you're not going to be able to breathe. You will die. Can you imagine the trauma of being there and watching as this Roman comes over to you? You are already have gone through it all. At this point, you're probably begging for them to come and to make the pain and to make the death faster for you. And you watch them take a step closer and closer to you with a club to club your leg so that way you can finally not have to lift yourself up, so you can finally die and have relief. What an awful thought that is. But they wouldn't have to break his legs. Jesus triumphantly dies. Jesus triumphantly cries In verse 30 of John 19 when Jesus therefore had received vinegar he said It is finished and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost Other gospels say to tell us that he cried it out I believe with a loud triumphant voice perhaps the very last raising up of Himself for one last breath to cry, It is finished! And He only died, not from blood loss, not from the Romans, not from the Jews, not from the pain, but because He bowed His head and gave up the ghost. Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus suffered greatly for our sins. I encourage you over the next few days before Sunday comes that you read through the gospel accounts and see what Christ went through. Not just for you, but because of you. He bowed his head, gave up the ghost. Were you there? when they crucified my lord were you there when they crucified my lord oh sometimes it causes me to tremble 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 were you there when they crucified my lord were you there when they nailed him to the tree were you there when they nailed him to the tree oh sometimes it causes me to tremble 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 were you there when they nailed him to the tree Though Christ died, you and I may rest assured He died triumphantly. He died the victor and Sunday is coming. And on that Sunday morning He rose the victor so that you and I too may have victory in Jesus. But thanks be to God who, give us us, who giveth us the victory Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this night. We thank You that Jesus would go through such for us. Who are we that You'd be mindful of us? Lord, over the next few days, help us by the power of Your Spirit, through Your Word, to see all that You have done for us through the sacrifice of Your Son so that we might be saved. May we look forward to Sunday to celebrate the resurrection. But God, come every day, and especially every Sunday that we gather, may we celebrate our risen Lord and that... Because of His resurrection, those of us who know You, we too one day shall rise and so shall we ever be with You, O Lord. God, I pray that You go with us now. May we be obedient to You. May we be filled with faith. May we meditate upon Your Word. May it do a work in us and through us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Y'all have a blessed night. hope to see you guys tomorrow night if you can make it over at Bethel. If not, we'll see you guys. Resurrection morning.